Our reading this morning is from Mark 6, verses 1 to 44. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given to him, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown among his relatives and in his own house is a prophet without honour. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. 
The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognised them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Then Jesus landed and saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so the disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was five thousand. Thank you, Katie. Um, it's a pretty strange collection of verses, um, a pretty unusual collection of stories, but we're going to pull them all together today and hopefully you'll see why we're doing them all together uh, and the good news that is collected there for us. So please keep your Bibles open, uh, even though the connections might not seem clear right now, hopefully they will as we work our way through these verses together. Uh, now I don't know if you caught it uh, a few weeks back, maybe a month ago now, uh, but Tesla released their latest prototype. Uh, we've got a picture of it, it's called Cybertruck, just in case you missed it, this is what it looks like. Yep, that's what it looks like. Uh, I can see your eyes there. It's pretty cool. Uh, that is apparently, according to Elon Musk, the future of utes. That's what you're all going to be driving in, I don't know, five, ten years. Uh, like every Tesla, it's pretty wild. The top of the line model will do 0 to 100 in 2.9 seconds, which is exactly what you need in a ute. Uh, for all of you grey nomads, you'll be very pleased. It can tow up to 6.5 tonnes, which is a lot of caravan, uh, or several caravans, I guess, if you would like. Uh, it's made of hardened rolled steel, so it's very safe. It's got unbreakable glass. Uh, at the launch, they decided to prove just how unbreakable that glass is by throwing a large steel ball at it. It's shattered, so they're still working on that. But allegedly, it will be unbreakable. Uh, despite that slight mishap, uh, there have been hundreds, even thousands, uh, of pre-orders for the Cybertruck, just because it's got a cool name, I reckon. Like, I drive a Cybertruck. That is awesome. As weird as that prototype is, and we can lose the picture now, uh, as weird as it is, it's still enough to excite people. Maybe just because it's a Tesla, I don't know. It's still enough to excite many people uh, and cause them to want to buy in, even though it's just the prototype. Who knows what the production model is going to look like? Well, today in Mark, in those verses that Katie just read for us, uh, Mark is giving us a picture of the prototype disciple what they look like, what they're about, 
what they are. Now, like the Cybertruck, the production model will perhaps look a little bit different, but the basic elements are the same. And the question Mark is asking of us is, will you buy in? Will you see this picture? Will you buy in to what is being presented? We've seen for months now, as we've been working through Mark's Gospel, that there are immense benefits, uh, incomparable benefits to following Jesus. We've seen life and forgiveness and healing and a place in his kingdom which is not only amazing in itself, but it's amazing that lasts forever. But there's also costs. Will you follow him? Will you come after him and be his? Because this is what it looks like to be his follower, to be a believer, to be a disciple of Jesus. And we're going to unpack that this morning. Uh, When we start chapter 6 off, we we pick up the story in uh, perhaps a place, perhaps a way that we might actually expect. Look again at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 6. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him, that he even does miracles? It sounds good, doesn't it? As usual, the crowd see, or sees, hears Jesus, and they're amazed. What a man, what a teaching, what miracles. And they even start asking the right questions, don't they? What's he about? Uh, where did he come from? It seems really positive. But then it's not. Look at verse 3. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. Uh, Overfamiliarity breeds contempt and we see that with Jesus and his friends, his uh, people of his community, they can't accept this all too human Jesus who grew up just down the road but now is claiming to be something remarkable. And they take offence at him. Is Jesus surprised? We're not told. But we do get a hint of how deep his disappointment ran. Look at verses 4 through to 6. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives and in his own house, is a prophet without honour. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Uh, If you read through Mark, you you see a few times people or crowds uh, being amazed at Jesus, amazed at what he's done. Only one time do you ever see Jesus himself amazed, and it's here. Amazed at their lack of faith in his own town. Uh, Just a note, if you find that um, phrase there, he could not do any miracles, a little unusual. Uh, It's not so much that Jesus was unable or prevented from being able to do miracles, Uh, it's that Jesus didn't do miracles because there wasn't that response of faith that miracles are calling for. In in fact, I mean, I don't know if you you read this, you you see just how amazing this passage is. Uh, How incredible that these people had such little faith in Jesus. I mean... I don't know what your Bible looks like, but on the same page, look at what Jesus has just done. You know, we've seen a a storm calmed. We've seen a demon-possessed man of incredible strength healed. Uh, We've seen a a sick woman made well. We've seen a little girl raised back to life. That's incredible. 
and yet there's no faith. It's astonishing to see the choice that these people are making with what's put before them. Uh, A little while back I read someone proposing a new idea for a new TV game show. It's just a joke, but uh, it would be watchable at least the first time. Uh, And their idea was to grab parents um, of a young child, of a toddler, uh, put the parents in a soundproof room, put them watching their child on a monitor, and then to put before their child two boxes. One filled with brightly coloured kids' toys, the other filled with a million dollars cash. And then you watch the parents as they watch in horror as their child makes the wrong decision. I mean, that would be, I think that would be entertaining. It would be cruel to do, but it would be entertaining. It's what we're watching here, isn't it? It's, it's what we're seeing unfold in Nazareth, in Jesus' own town. On, on one hand, we have life. We've got hope. We've got uh, a kingdom. And on the other, we have despair going the same old way, hopelessness. I mean, it it seems so clear, doesn't it? To us, the reader, with the the big picture, it seems so obvious. Just put aside your prejudices and accept him. Uh, Go past his humanity and see his authority and say yes. And yet they don't. Despite the startling demonstrations of Jesus' divinity, his town is blinded to him. And they continue to reject him. It's a really sobering story, isn't it? It kind of interrupts the trajectory of, of Mark's, uh, Mark's account. So many amazing things have been happening. So, yes, Jesus has been proved again and again to be so incredible. There is so much on offer in his name, things that are utterly priceless. But many will still reject him even those who were closest to him, even those who you would think should be first in line to accept him, even they will reject him. Yes, the kingdom he is bringing is growing. Yes, it will continue to grow. But yes, many will still say no and reject. In one sense, that is kind of freeing for us, isn't it? You know, if Jesus, if even Jesus was rejected, then it shouldn't surprise us, should it? If we're rejected, if we too are are knocked back when we try to talk about him. I mean, we shouldn't fall into the trap of thinking that, you know, if only I could nail the clearest or best uh, or most amazing gospel presentation or if, if someone could do that, if only that would happen, then everyone would, you know, everyone would believe, everyone would come to Jesus and become a Christian. It doesn't work that way. It didn't work that way for Jesus. Why should we expect it to work that way for us? Yes, we want to be clear when we talk about the gospel. Yes, we want to be able to put it into words well. But we should still expect that not everyone is going to accept it. Not everyone is going to respond. And sadly, we're going to have to watch people make that choice knowing full well what it means. Knowing exactly what the consequences are. Unfortunately, that is the reality of talking about Jesus in this world. Some will accept, praise God, and some will not. So how do we respond knowing that? What do we do? 
but we don't stop talking about him. We see that as the story continues. We pick it back up halfway through verse 6. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. Yes, there's been a setback, but the work continues. And in fact, the work even expands. Now Jesus sends his disciples to go out independently of him to keep doing his work, announcing that his kingdom is here, uh, showing the authority of that kingdom. But Jesus sends them out in a very specific way. Look at the description in verses 8 through 11. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. It seems kind of weird. You know, Mark doesn't add a lot of extra details in. So why does he put in this description of the disciples and how they're supposed to dress you know, when they're going on mission? It seems kind of strange. Well, there's two key points Mark is making. First of all, Jesus' disciples go in faith. Their life, their work, is one of utterly relying on God. They're not taking provisions for the journey, they're taking the bare minimum. They're going so that their entire life and appearance and way testifies to their message. I trust God. Their way confirms their words. But secondly, the second point that Mark is making is that they are recognisable. That no one can look at them and not know who they are and what they're about. Uh, it, you know, it's like all the people around at the moment. Uh, people dressed in red with white trim. You know what it's about. Even Amira knows what it's about. Santa, it's, it's mind-boggling how many Santas there are in existence. He gets around. You know what you see. You see a beard, you see a tummy, you see red suit, white fur. It's Santa. Everyone knows that. It's, it's instantly recognisable. You only have to catch a glimpse. It's Santa. So the disciples. We might not recognise them quite as clearly, but the people in that day would have known exactly what this picture is about. It is a picture that goes way back in their history to one of the key times of them as a people. It is a picture that reminds them of the time that they escaped, the nation of Israel escaped from Egypt. This is how they dressed, with their staff in hand, ready for the journey with the bare minimums only. Jesus is saying, that was God's people then, but you are God's people now. Jesus' followers, these 12 disciples, are God's true people. They are who, who, who his people are. They are the ones, not the rest of the nation who thought they were. He's saying, you guys are it. You're the ones now. <laughs> That's a controversial thing to say. Even more controversial, this strange stuff about shaking of the dust. Uh, shaking the dust off your feet is a symbol of rejection or of despising. Uh, if you're a pious Jew and you went on an overseas holiday, uh, when you were returning back to Israel, you're getting to the border, what you would do is, as you cross the border, take your sandals off, shake off the outside dust, I know it's only symbolic, but that's what you would do, and then put your sandals back on and step into the land. And what you're saying is, Outside country bad, inside country good. 
What Jesus is saying is, geography doesn't matter anymore. What matters now is how you respond to me. Towns, places that accept me, good. Towns, places that don't accept me, bad. That was dramatic. Just swap me to the blue one for now. Thank you. So what Jesus is saying to his disciples is, you are my true people and the other true people are the ones who respond to me, who accept me. Go out, gather those who will listen. The key difference is, the key difference in this picture is that when God's people in the Old Testament were gathered by God, God called them something very special. He said, you are a kingdom of priests for me. You're a kingdom of priests, which means people from all over, they can come to you and they can meet me and learn about me. The difference here is, Jesus says, it's not about people coming to you, it's about you going to them. Look at verse 12 and 13. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Jesus' followers are God's true people, the fulfilment of his people. Not that others would come to them, but that they would go to others to proclaim Jesus' name, to proclaim life in his name and hope in him alone. Jesus' followers, all of his people, all his disciples, are God's true people, chosen and special and precious to him and integral to who they are, integral to their being, is going, is being sent on his work to announce him and to speak of life in his name. And that is equally as true for us today as it is for Jesus' disciples back then. If you claim to follow Jesus, if you claim to believe in him, then you are not only his disciple, but you are sent by him and for his sake. What is true for them is true for us as well. Yes, it is not exactly in the same way his disciples were sent then. Uh, We're not sent primarily to cast out demons or heal with oil. We're not going to rule that out, but it's not mentioned to us. When Jesus repeats his sending in Matthew 28, uh, neither of those things appear. Instead, what he repeats is, go, baptise, that's call people to a decisive change, a repentance, and teach them. That's our calling. That's our work. We are sent on that. And I hope for you, that is both shocking and not shocking. Not shocking because this shouldn't be new news to you. We've talked about this before. Uh, We've mentioned it. We've looked into it. But on the other hand, I hope it is shocking because it presents a different, a a radically different, I think, way of looking at the Christian life. Uh, So often we look at I am a Christian uh, and we kind of just call it that. Christian is about being. And we forget that actually integral to who we are is going in Jesus' name going to announce him. And you, if you believe in Jesus, are that. Not just a special part, not a certain one or two of us, but you. 
You are sent by Jesus. When I look out of here, uh, I don't see just a church, but I actually see Jesus' mission team that he has chosen to go and proclaim his name in Olverston. That's quite a remarkable thing, isn't it? If you are called by his name, if you follow him, you are his workers sent by him. That is quite radical. I don't know if you've ever looked at your living in Olverston like that. You're not here by accident. You're not here because you thought it was a great idea. You're here because Jesus needed some more workers here. Yes, there's lots of other reasons as well, but that's how you're here. Have you ever looked at your workplace like that? That you are Jesus' missionary to your workplace? What about your gym or your sports club or your school? What about your street? I mean, isn't that a remarkable thing? Have you ever just stopped and thought, you know, I'm here because Jesus has put me here to talk about him. That Jesus has put you here to say, you know, Jesus couldn't be here personally, but he wanted me to tell you. I think that's incredible. (laughs) It's the best marketing campaign that has ever been thought of. And it's so much more than marketing. Because we get to go wherever we are, and talk about hope and life and forgiveness. If you believe in Jesus, then that is who you are. That's what we're about. Sent by him. Sent in his name. And so Jesus' original disciples are sent and we eagerly anticipate what happens, what's going to take place on their mission. But Mark presses pause. And we have to wait, don't we? They're sent in verse 13. They don't come back till verse 30 because their story all of a sudden is very abruptly interrupted. Look at verse 14. King Herod heard about this for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Now, obviously, the disciples' mission is working because lots and lots of people are hearing about Jesus. Lots and lots of people are hearing that amazing things are happening and everyone's talking about him, even though they're quite confused by what's actually going on. But now our story gets sidetracked. Now we go down this path of talking about Herod and John all of a sudden. Now, I'm not going to read all of that again, but let's just summarise what actually happens Uh, Herod, in case you're unaware, Herod is the ruler, Um, not technically a king, he was technically a tetrarch, which means ruler of a fourth piece, but everyone called him king because tetrarch, you know, is a bit of a mouthful. Uh, Herod had a weird family. Um, If you ever want, you know, kind of a bizarre journey into a strange, strange time, uh, look into Herod's family tree. It's a bit confusing. Um, Herod divorced his own wife and then convinced his brother's wife to divorce his brother so that they could marry each other. Um, Not only is that strange back then, is it strange today, but it was unlawful. Um, It was unlawful. And so John the Baptist pointed that out, which Herod didn't like very much, and his wife apparently liked even less, so they put him in prison. Herod, very curious, as we see, uh, what John was all about, let him live, His wife, very furious, plotted to kill him. 
The chance comes, Herod is at a banquet for his birthday. He's obviously had a bit to drink. He's trying to impress all his mates and look like the big guy. So he makes a lavish promise to his niece. Uh, Whatever you want, you can have it. Obviously not half the kingdom, that's exaggeration. But whatever you want, it's all yours. She goes away, comes back, says, I want the head of John the Baptist, like I said, weird family. He can't back out. He's trapped by his own pride. And so John the Baptist dies. So why tell us? What has that actually got to do with anything that's going on here? Well, Mark's doing something clever. Mark has this technique. uh, Scholars like to call it the Markan sandwich, which is a very boring-sounding kind of sandwich, um, but scholars have to call things something. It justifies their job. Anyway, that's what Mark does. It's called the Markan sandwich. There's your trivia for the day. What Mark does is, tells a story doesn't tell the whole story, splits it in half, chucks another story in the middle. We saw it last week, uh, started the story of Jairus and his daughter who was very sick, stopped that story, put the story of the bleeding woman in the middle and then finished the story of Jairus. Why does Mark do it? Well he does it because he's saying that middle story informs the other one as well. That contains essential information which unlocks the whole lot for us. So if you're reading Mark, look for that, the Mark and Sandwich. So what's Mark doing here? Well, he's taken this story of discipleship, hasn't he? Of the disciples going out and being sent and he's interrupted it and in the middle he's thrown in this story of martyrdom. What's Mark saying? Martyrdom and discipleship are linked. Discipleship and death are intertwined. Cast your mind back a couple of months when we opened up the very start of Mark's Gospel. Do you remember we met John the Baptist? And what did he say? John the Baptist said way back in chapter 1, After me will come one more powerful than I, one greater than I. And we've seen that happen, haven't we? We've seen the greater, more powerful one come and obviously it's Jesus. He's the one who's bigger, he's the one who's greater than John. And now John has died brutally and unfairly at the hands of the authorities. And Jesus is greater than John. So what are we being set up to expect? We're being set up, well, I mean, we know the story, don't we? But we're being set up to expect it, aren't we? We're expecting now Jesus is also going to die, even more brutally, even more unfairly, also at the hands of the authorities. And that's what plays out, doesn't it? John dies, calling out the sin in others. Jesus is soon going to die, not calling out the sin, but bearing the sin of others. John calls for repentance. Jesus also calls for repentance and makes it possible giving life to all who believe and follow. Mark is setting up the rest of this book. He's saying Jesus is the greater. And what did Jesus say? Come and follow me. Come after me. Walk the path that I walk. It's a caution to us. Life following Jesus is not only receiving all the good that he has come to give, all the blessings that he has come to bestow, it is life going where he went. 
Uh, one writer puts it, the sandwich structure draws mission and martyrdom, discipleship and death into an inseparable relationship. Following Jesus is not like following someone on social media. It's no, he's not there to you know, pay attention to or ignore as you feel free. Uh, it's more like putting shares in a company, uh, investing yourself in them, because once you're invested there, their highs are your highs, yes, but their lows are your lows as well, aren't they? When you follow Jesus, when you put your faith in Jesus, you invest your entire self with him. All of your hope, all of your eternity, all of your life is in him. And yes, his highs are your highs and they are wonderful highs indeed. There is nothing like them. Forgiveness and life and eternity, all of that's yours. But, lows as well. Death and suffering and rejection too. You and I each need to understand that there is a cost in following Jesus and we are going to have to pay it. It's not optional. There's no way around it. We can't just dodge that or opt out for that section. Following Jesus is not a calling to a comfortable life. Confident, yes, but comfortable, no. Because we have an unpopular, uncompromising message to proclaim. It will create conflict. It will lead to cost to us. And we can't shy away from that. As tempting as it would be, we ought not shy back from that. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. There are real costs here. Whether it be at work or at home or with friends, there is a lot we could jeopardise. This is not a calling to you know, Bible bash people or be that abrasive Christian. It's not about that at all. We're simply called to announce the truth, to do it well, to do it in love, to talk about our hope in Jesus, to call people to repentance in him and to accept the cost that comes with it. I mean, if we're honest, and I'm talking about myself as well, there are plenty of times, aren't there, where we can talk about Jesus. There's heaps of opportunities where we can remind people about him, where we can speak to our hope that is in him without being weird or without being harsh, how many times do we miss them, scared or timid or uncertain? It will cost us. But we are called to speak of him. Well, finally the disciples return and we meet them again in verse 30. Now look with me at verse 30 through 34. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognised them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Obviously the disciples have have done their work well because when they return to Jesus, they're followed by huge crowds. Lots and lots of people are with them. Uh, There's no chance for their quiet debrief that they, they, they need or that they want. They're right back into this work. 
But we strike a problem. They've gone a long way away. They're in an isolated, quiet place and it's getting late. Verse 35. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. There's a problem. We we simply can't provide food for for this massive crowd. What are we going to do? Jesus' solution? Deal with it. (laughs) A bit more gracious than that. You do it. Verse 37. But he answered, you give them something to eat. I mean, after all, you've just been on this greatly, wildly successful mission. You've done all sorts of amazing things, seen wonderful things happen. Handle it. It's well within your capability. But the disciples are still learning. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wage. You know, thousands and thousands of dollars. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? The disciples are still learning. And so Jesus demonstrates. Jesus provides. Verse 38. How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set them before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. It's a remarkable story, uh, laden with meaning. Uh, Because Mark is doing something very clever here. Mark's Mark's doing something very important. Right through that story, he's, he's dropping these little hints, dropping these little clues and little tidbits for us to grab onto, and he's building this picture of us, uh, for us, of Jesus. Now, I don't know if you remember uh, from years ago the TV show, the kids' TV show, Mr. Squiggle. I don't know. It's like it's a classic. I don't know what Mr. Squiggle was, but he had a big pencil for a nose, um, and he, I think he was a marionette. Like this is going back a long time. But what Mrs. Obviously, having a long pencil for a nose, Mr. Squiggle drew pictures, as you would do if you had a long pencil for a nose. But every now and again, they would send in a picture. Uh, some kid, allegedly, would send in a picture with just a random line drawn on it, and it would be Mr. Squiggle's job to turn that into a recognisable picture of something. And so he'd put it on his easel, upside down. I don't know if you've seen it, you'll know. <laughs> and Mr. Squiggle would start drawing more lines on that piece of paper. One over here and you know, one over there and one over there. And it would be abstract. And it looked like it was becoming even more of a mess. Nothing recognisable there. But he would add more and more. And gradually, this picture starts to emerge. And by the end, what, what, what looked quite bizarre and quite strange is a clearly recognisable picture. And that's what Mark's doing here. He's dropping these little hints, little lines throughout this story so that by the end we have a clear picture of what's going on. Uh, Look at some of the words he uses. He doesn't use them by accident. Uh, Solitary place, sheep without a shepherd, hunger and need, satisfied, abundance, uh, green, 12 basketfuls. There's all these little clues being dropped. Mark's saying, remember your history. (laughs) Remember the Old Testament. If you know the Old Testament, there's at least two key places where you find these words, where you find this picture. 
One's lesser known, we find it in Ezekiel 36, uh, where God is lamenting over his people saying they're lost and they're being led astray. What they need is a good shepherd who's going to lead them to good places, who's going to rescue them from their predicament, who's going to give them great abundance. And the other place you find them, far better known, is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. He prepares a table for me. My cup overflows. Both of them, one a song, one a prophecy, draw together this picture of a day when God will gather his people together in great number and great abundance and he will give them much. He will provide safety. He will provide everything that they need. He will give them life again. He will give them rescue and protection from all dangers. He will give them hope. He will give them a hero and a rescuer, one who will be the good shepherd. And Mark is saying, now. Look at it. He is here. He is here. In spite of everything that has happened in this chapter, in spite of all the opposition, all the rejection, all the death, God is gathering his sheep. He is gathering his people. He is taking them in. He is caring for them. They are his. He has come to feed and lead and save them. And many, thousands, twelve symbolic of fullness of God's people, will find safety and hope and salvation in him. Yes, this chapter is full of quite harsh and, and, and clear warnings, but there is a hope too. Yes, there is rejection. Yes, there is persecution, even to death. But Jesus is gathering his people. He is bringing them to himself. He is saving them and giving them life. And he is sending his disciples to join him and continue his work. Yes, we will suffer. Yes, we will be rejected. Yes, we will pay the price but Jesus is gathering his people through us. And the harvest won't just be thousands, but it will be millions and even more. Because what he is doing through us is working his way to that beautiful picture that he records at the end of history. We saw it earlier this year from the book of Revelation a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. In spite of everything, that is what God is doing. That is what God is doing here. That is what God is doing through us. Even as we suffer, even as we pay the price, even as we speak of Jesus and even do simple little things like hand out a card advertising our Christmas Day service, God is working towards this. That is our portrait of the disciple. 
Regardless of the cost and opposition, both through and with his disciples, Jesus is gathering his people. We will see rejection, we will be persecuted, we will pay the price, but we will also see and share in that beautiful end he is working towards amidst the glorious multitude before the throne and the Lamb forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks because the Good Shepherd is here. He has brought grace and forgiveness and life to many, even to sinners like us who receive him by faith. Father, we praise you that even now, even despite all the opposition and apathy and rejection we see all around us, you are still gathering, you are still saving a people to yourself, a multitude. Father, it's amazing that you use weak and fallible people like us in this. And so we pray that you would help us to see ourselves as sent by you to announce Jesus. Lord, help us be bold, help us be glad in this, eagerly looking for places where we can talk about him. Father, even though we're rejected, even though the work is hard, help us to persevere, even if the going be slow. And may you gather all around us, even here in Olverston, a large harvest through us, many people who will one day stand next to before your throne for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.